0: National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. How many are too many? That's the question to
1: mull in the wake of news from the National Park Service that last year nearly 300 million people visited the national park system. Now to put some context into that number, it's not the highest annual tally that the national parks have counted. Back in 2016, during the centennial of the National Park Service, nearly 331 million people headed out into the parks. But that doesn't mean that last year's number of 300 million, or almost, marked an improvement in your national park experience. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. What is the perfect number for annual visitation to the National Park System's 423 units? We really don't know, because not all of those 423 units have specified the ideal carrying capacity for their parks, the number of visitors that doesn't impact resources, that doesn't strain the park staff, and doesn't adversely impact your national park experience. To help sort out the pluses and minuses of 300 million visitors a year to the park system, and to offer you some suggestions for escaping those crowds, we've asked Becky Lomax, author of USA National Parks, complete guide to all 63 parks by moon to return to The Traveler. We'll be back with Becky in a minute.
0: Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. In addition to some of the best rates in the country, Interior Federal Credit Union gives back their members more than other financial institutions in the form of dividends and low or no fees. With higher dividend rates, you can earn more in all your accounts, like certificates, money markets, or even a checking account. They focus to make sure that their members aren't being nickled and dimed every time they make a transaction. That's the beauty of Interior Federal Credit Union. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join wild tributes for the parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org.
1: Okay, we're back with Becky Lomax, the author of USA National Parks, The Complete Guide to How Many Parks? Uh, Becky, I know the first edition was 59 national parks. Um, I'm guessing- Second edition
2: was 62, and that's the one that's available right now. And the new one coming out this
1: fall is 63. Okay, I was wondering about that because uh, the numbers seem to change quite frequently these days. (laughs) They do, quickly. So I have to ask you, what was your initial thought when you heard that 297.1 million people entered the national park system last year? <laughs> part of me went,
2: oh, my lands. And the other part was like, yeah, that seems, that seems like it's what happened. You know, it was definitely crowded even outside around some of the bigger parks that they get, you know, like the top 10 and probably the top 15, 20, 25. Um, It was crowded, definitely.
1: Yeah, and I I think um, that number of 297 million um, was based on reports from 388 of the 423 park units. And of course, there were some park units, some of the smaller historical sites back east that are still closed because of COVID. And, um, you know, they haven't opened those back up. And of course, you know, we got to throw that caveat out there that the park system counting system is not perfect. There's a lot of issues that parks have with with counters, either malfunctioning, not functioning, um, adding counters, taking counters down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But still, 297 million. That's a big number. And um, as as the Park Service pointed out, they didn't call it a concern, but I think it's safe to say that it's a concern. That roughly half of those numbers, about 148 million went to 25 of the 423 units of the park system. That kind of not only puts things in perspective, but boggles my mind.
2: Yeah, definitely. It just, you know, and I look, I look at what's on in that 25 versus what the other national parks are. And it's like, there's a ton of really good parks in the less visited ones and then there's some small tiny surprises that are in that top 25 too. So it's it's kind of an interesting division of the parks.
1: Which one surprised you in the top 25? Indiana
2: Dunes. I didn't expect it to be quite as high as it was. And I think it was it was up in the top 10. It was 24. Oh, it was 24? 24. 3.2 million. I'm looking at Oh, you know what? I've just I just have the list. That's just the national parks, not the the one named national parks. Yeah, and then the named national parks. It's like nine, which super surprised me.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's close to Chicago now.
2: Correct. Yeah, and that's (laughs) I think that helps out visitation there a lot.
1: Well, that's another thing. I mean, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, um, number two with fourteen point one million. And a lot of that, I think, is just traffic driving back and forth between Tennessee and North Carolina, not necessarily entering, I mean, getting off the highway and exploring the park.
2: Right. Or maybe not hiking or camping or anything else there.
1: Yeah. I mean, you've got Blue Ridge Parkway, 15.9 million, and a lot of people drive the parkway. It's a a gorgeous scenery, scenic parkway. I don't think we should be surprised that the Natchez Trace Parkway showed up. Um, Again, beautiful parkway, nice to scenery nice history nice drive i wouldn't say much surprised me i mean you've got a couple a couple of the national mall sites the world war ii memorial and the vietnam veterans memorial and i'm really curious how they count numbers there since you know they're all out in the open and next to one another
2: right yeah all part of that mall area so
1: yeah and then um Glen canyon national recreation area 3.1 million i think we're going to see a big drop this year I mean, Lake Powell keeps going down. Um, Boat ramps keep coming out of the water. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping to get the the Glen Canyon superintendent on on the podcast in the coming weeks to get his take on um, how things are going in terms of coming up with um, solutions to the draining of Lake Powell. But um, that's certainly going to be interesting. Now, what also was interesting about the National Park Service release from Washington on the headcount for 2021 was the new director, Chuck Sams, throwing out an appeal that, hey, folks, the top 25 are really nice, but there's a lot of nice other parks that you should really explore. I think that was the first time that I can recall a park service director taking that stance.
2: Yeah, I don't think we've heard that before. That was different. And it was
1: kind of nice.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I agree. I mean, there are so many... Um, when I look at the named national parks, the 63, there are so many in that bottom half that are just phenomenal parks. And, you know, a couple of my favorites are down there too. And, um, you know, I just, you know, people ask me where to go. And I, I say, go to those because you're going to avoid the crowds that are around some of the big 25.
1: And we're going to, we're going to make you name some of those, um, a little bit later in the the show this morning, but. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we ran a poll on National Parks Traveler on whether f- people thought the parks were too crowded and whether they thought Yellowstone or Yosemite or Grand Teton or Grand Canyon or Rocky Mountain were too crowded. And it was the best poll we've run. We had almost 400 answers, 400 uh, votes on on that. And the bulk of them said, yes, the national park system is too crowded. And we've got a, a, a occasional commentator on on the uh, the traveler who who uses the pseudonym Stephen Mather and uh, <laughs> makes me wonder if he's a park service person. Um, <laughs> but anyway, his his point was, you know, balderdash. I mean, I can go and stand on the top of Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park with my family, and I don't care if I'm surrounded by a uh, hundred or a thousand. This is a great national park experience. Maybe I'm getting too long in tooth, but. I don't consider that a great national park experience. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, I kind of feel the same way. You know, the closest park to me is Glacier. I'm 20 minutes from that one. So I've been in that park a ton. 20 years ago, we could go up to Logan Pass, you know, late in the afternoon, pack a, you know, lunch in our pack for dinner, hike up to Hidden Lake Overlook, and, you know, there'd be 10... 20 people on the trail total. Well, now if you do it, it's still, um, it's super crowded in the evening. You know, it's not just crowded wall to wall people in the daytime, but at that, those crowds now are extending further in the day. So even those times that you used to be able to get away from people and have more solitude on a trail, it doesn't necessarily happen in really
1: crowded parks. But there's the the position out there that, that Mather expressed that this is today's reality. And so, you know, I've been trotting this earth. I'm going on my seventh decade. I can't imagine that. I always cringe when I say that. But, you know, when I grew up in the 60s and went to college in the 70s, that was my perspective. And so, of course, today is going to be more crowded in places. But th- does that make it wrong? Because, you know, if you take my parents who who grew up in the thirties and the forties, there would have been a totally different experience. Yes. And so they might've seen mine experiences. Boy, it's kind of crowded there in the sixties, Kurt.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it, it is a different experience, but, um, I can, I can kind of agree with what Mather said about, you know, being on Cadillac Mountain and you're up there for maybe the sunrise or whatever. It's going to be gorgeous no matter what the number of people, definitely. But I still think the experience itself is different when you've got thousands of people doing something versus 15. And I'll give you an example. Going to Old Faithful, you go in the summertime. Everybody loves seeing Old Faithful erupt. It's very cool. But you are you are watching that with, you know, thousands of people rimming the geyser. You go in winter and you might be one of 20 people rimming the geyser, watching it go off. And that's an amazing experience to be, to not have that many people around. And it's just like a very unique thing. To experience with that kind of uh, fewer people around the experience.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, a number of years ago, um, I think it was less than ten, but more than five. <laughs> my <laughs> one, my one son and I, we went to Lassen Volcanic National Park and we hiked up Lassen Peak. You know, which is no small feat, and we got to the top of the peak, and it was like a party. I mean, there were people up there. They had brought beer up. They were, you know, down in beers. There was, uh, you know, great cell reception. People were sending Instagram photos. They were tweeting, texting their friends. They were even calling their friends. And it was not, in my vein, a National Park experience. It was kind of disappointing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you on that.
1: You know, and along with what the the Blue Ridge Parkway superintendent said about, you know, the 15.9 million— that visited her park last year, um, impacts are showing up. We're not hearing that from many, if any other park superintendents, but what we are seeing are more reservation systems. I mean, um, Yosemite just announced the other day that they're bringing back their timed entry or their reservation system for this coming summer, not because of COVID, but they they put the blame on construction projects that they have in the park. and they're good construction projects they're funded by the great funded by the great American outdoors act. And so it's necessary work to keep the park looking beautiful and, and functioning and all that. But, you know, do you, do you think Yosemite should just make reservations a, a permanent thing? People have to get used to, you know, you, you can't go out to your favorite restaurant if all the tables are full. So Correct. why should we be able to just keep putting more, more and more people into Yosemite or Yellowstone or Rocky mountain?
2: Right. Right. And, you know, there's a point at which you get in in the way some of the parks are designed with the roads, you either in and out or it's just one up and over and there's no choices to go off of that. Um, Some of those, you get enough vehicles on it and it becomes kind of a gridlock thing where, you know, any emergency vehicle couldn't get up it. And a lot of cars, you know, pulling off on places they shouldn't pull off and trampling the edges of meadows further, widening the roads, essentially, because they keep pulling off in more and more places to either watch wildlife or take, take a picture or, you know, see the view or whatever. And those have impacts on the whole, not just the visual thing, but on the actual wildlife and plant life that's around those roads. So I think the impacts, you know, you got the gridlock issue, you've got the safety issue, and then you've got the issue to the actual environment there that are important ones to consider with yeah. having too many people on some of
1: those roads. You know, um, in, in one of my previous careers with the Associated Press, I found myself back in 1992 sitting in the office of Marshall Gingery, who at the time was the deputy superintendent of Grand Teton National Park, And he lamented to me the demands and the impacts of the growing visitation to the park system then. As he put it, um, he told me, I just read recently on the celebration of our 75th anniversary, the park services caught in between hearing the call of the wild and hearing the call of the city. He said of all the threats to the parks, many believe the greatest threat is the one posed by the visitor. That was back in 1992. You know, reading between the the lines of what we're seeing today with um, park visitation going up and up and up, and we hear this almost annual comment that for every one dollar spent on the national park system or a national park, we're generating ten dollars in economic activity around the parks in the gateway towns. Now, back during my 1992 visit to Grand Teton. I also spoke to Pete Hayden, who at the time was the park's chief of resource management, and he told me this. He goes, I think sometime around 30 years ago, the National Park Service got into a mindset that we are a political entity. Therefore, we have politically knowledgeable people to manage our areas. In a lot of cases, those people came out a little shortchanged in the resource end. I mean, everything was negotiable. He went on to say from my perspective none of the resources of a national park are negotiable period that doesn't sit too well with management anymore or some segments of the public i think it's fair to say that those statements ring true today no absolutely they do yeah and it's it you know it just um
2: it's every (laughs) humans have such a big impact on the parks. And I know I was just talking about what happens on the roads, but some of the trails that I hike frequently have widened from a path that was three feet wide to something that you could actually like the size of a one lane of road through like Alpine tundra areas. That is not right. And that's where, you know, the park is stuck. How do you manage that? And how do you, you know, what do you do to help protect the resource there and to keep people from destroying these meadows that are, they're very fragile and they take forever to grow back.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, no, that that's a, a key problem. I know um, when I visited Yosemite National Park and, and this might've been back in 2008, so it's been a while. Um, I took a hike up out of Tuolumne Meadows. And it's like you said, I mean, it started out and you've, you've got a, a group of like three or four people with backpacks on or whatnot, and they all want to walk side by side so they can talk. And so you had three or four lanes that people had created and, and slowly, slowly they, they shrank down to, to one or two. Um, I know the, the park has been doing a lot of work up along the Tioga road corridor and I'll, I'll be curious, you know, to, to go back and see how they've addressed that type of situation. Cause it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean. I would not want to be a park manager. I mean, um, Cam Shaley, the Yellowstone Park superintendent, and I talk frequently, and, you know, I keep saying, you know, why don't you go with the reservation system? And, you know, he said, well, do you want to be deprived of coming to Yellowstone only once every five years? And he's got a point, but at the same time, if, if everybody's allowed in, what's that going to do to the, the resource, not to mention the visitor experience?
2: Yeah, definitely. Both of those are at risk from, you know, just not having any management on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a a tough, tough one. I mean, we've seen uh, Zion National Park trying to control traffic on Angel's Landing, and I I don't know how much that is due to resource or or hiker safety um, because that's – it can be a treacherous hike depending on your perspective. Right,
2: right. And if you talk about (laughs) – More more than a few people trying to pass at the same time along some of those really narrow stretches. That can be a little disconcerting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People going up, people coming down, hanging onto that chain. Yeah. Of course, um, you know, last year at Great Smoky Mountains, we saw them put in a reservation system for trailhead parking. Right. At Laurel Falls. Yeah, Yeah. Really interesting. Um, I don't think they're coming back with that this year. One thing I did hear the other day, um, Apparently in Yellowstone, they're thinking about maybe requiring reservations to go to Grand Prismatic Spring to walk that boardwalk.
2: Uh, That wouldn't wouldn't be a bad idea. I mean, what's happened there is there's a small parking lot and then a narrow road that accesses it. And so what's happened is this colossal parking mess with people trying to get into the parking lot to go do the boardwalk to the springs. Yeah, yeah. And I think what alleviated it a little bit was when they, a couple of years ago, when the conservancy there helped fund the a new trail that would go up to the Overlook, of the prismatic spring. And so that gave people another option for how to see it. If you couldn't get in the parking lot or park along the road, you know, like as they often do. So that helped a little bit, but it's still, the spring has had so much, I want to say Instagram publication (laughs) and so forth that that, that almost has become you know, Old Faithful is a place that everybody wanted to go. Grand Prismatic is just almost right there with it as a place that everybody wants to go see because it's been publicized so much, I think.
1: And it's such a beautiful hot spring. And, uh, yeah, it was a couple of years ago that uh, some fool decided to fly their um, their drone over the Grand right. Prismatic, try and get some pictures. And uh, the drone went down into Grand Prismatic, and I don't think it was ever recovered. No, you can't recover
2: a lot of that stuff that goes in there.
1: Yeah. yeah. Ball
2: caps that blow off people's heads and so forth. You know, you see them sitting there and you know they're just going to be part of the spring.
1: That's right. That's right. We're talking today with Becky Lomax, the author of USA National Parks, A Complete Guide to 62, working on 63, um, published by Moon. And um, we're talking about visitation to the national park system We're going to be back in a a minute to um, look at some places how you can avoid those crowds of the top 25.
0: Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix the depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the ten most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kedjemakujik, Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today and start planning your natural getaway. Okay,
1: we're back today with uh, Becky Lomax, the author of uh, USA National Parks, the complete guide to all of the national parks that exist out there. Becky, you know, looking at the crowding that has taken place in, in national parks, and, and let, me, let me run through that top 25 list. And this, this includes national parks, national seashores, national recreation areas, just to, to give our listeners a, a chance to understand what's in the top 25. We've got the Blue Ridge Parkway with 15.9 million visitors last year. Great Smoky Mountains National Park, 14.1 million. Golden Gate National Recreation Area, 13.7 million. Gateway National Recreation Area, the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area, 9.1 million. Lake Mead National Recreation Area in Nevada, with 7.6 million. The George Washington Memorial Parkway, 6.8 million. And I've got to wonder about that figure because a lot of people drive that to work in the morning. Uh, The Natchez Trace Parkway, 6.4 million. The Lincoln Memorial, 5.8 million. Gulf Islands National Seashore, 5.5 million. Zion National Park, 5 million. Chesapeake and Ohio Canal National Historical Park, 5 million. Yellowstone National Park, 4.9 million. Amazing. Grand Canyon National Park, 4.5 million. Rocky Mountain National Park, 4.4 million. Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area, 4.3 million. Acadia National Park, 4 million. I would have figured that would have more. Cape Cod National Seashore, also 4 million. Again, being so close to Boston, I'm kind of surprised it didn't have more. Grand Teton National Park, 3.9 million. The World War II Memorial, 3.7 million. Vietnam Veterans Memorial, 3.6 million. Yosemite National Park, 3.3 million. Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area, 3.3 million. Cape Hatteras National Seashore, 3.2 million. Indiana Dunes National Park, 3.2 million. In Glen Canyon National Recreation Area with 3.1 million visitors last year. That's quite a, quite a diverse collection of, of parks um, across the country. It's, some of the numbers are surprising, some aren't surprising. But I'm wondering, you know, after reading that and after um, hearing Director Sam saying that, hey folks, we got to look elsewhere beyond the top 25, maybe you need to write a book on the most overlooked units of the national park system. <laughs> that sounds great. It sounds really fun too. It would be, and I don't think you're, you're short of any wonders to talk about, to write about.
2: No, no, there's plenty out there. And, you know, <laughs> what's funny is people have often asked me about, you know, like wildlife watching in Yellowstone. That's got to be the best place to go. And I'll often throw in, mm, it's really good at Yellowstone, but beer Roosevelt National Park. Oh, man, the wildlife watching there is phenomenal. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a, you know, a fraction of the people. Yeah. And it definitely is. Uh, it's got amazing badland scenery. And then the wildlife in there, they've got everything from bison to wild horses that are really fun. And you don't get the wild horses in Yellowstone.
1: No, no. And that's, that's a good thing, though.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that would bring a whole nother factor in there, but yeah, it's you know so Theodore Roosevelt is one of those parks that I say yeah, go see that one. It's 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 just incredible scenery and incredible wildlife watching there.
1: And it's got the great history of Theodore Roosevelt himself, and and that's where he learned his conservation ethos. You know, up there on the Elkhorn Ranch that he settled and and lived and experienced the Wild West as it was starting to wink out, but, um, no, definitely an interesting place. One thing that does, does surprise me. And one of many things that surprised me is that the South Dakota parks weren't more represented. I mean, Badlands, um, Jewel Cave, Wind Cave. I mean, it's a perfect week trip. You can tie all those three parks and, and Mount Rushmore together. Although Mount Rushmore is very crowded. But it's an easy drive going from each one of those parks to the next one. And you've got the, that rugged Badlands scenery and the bison at Badlands National Park. At Wind Cave, you've got phenomenal caves and bison. Jewel Cave, again, phenomenal caves.
2: Yes, I totally agree with you. And actually, you can, if you're willing to do the five-hour drive up to Theodore Roosevelt, you can add a nice little triangle with all the, all the parks you mentioned, plus Theodore Roosevelt in there.
1: And if you're going to go that far, you might as well go a little bit further north to, to Fort Union. <laughs> Have you ever been there? No, I haven't. <laughs> oh, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating trading post. I mean, this was right on the Missouri River. You had the trappers come through there. You had the Native Americans coming through there. It was just just lots of history, lots of history. Um, anyway, what are some of your other suggestions for for overlooked units in the national park system that people should take a look at? Well, you know,
2: one of them I just I, all I think of is color when I think of it is Petrified Forest National Park. Sure, and um, it's you know its north end has the Painted Canyon there that is the oranges and rusts and yellows and it just just about every color that's connected with those three colors is in there, and the I mean, it's just amazing color. And then you drive down through Petrified Forest Park, you get to the area called Blue Mesa. And suddenly it's changed from all these oranges to these layers that are blue and gray and maroon and white, just stacked one on top of the other. And you know, hiking through that area, driving by it, the color is just a blow away. And then if you get on any of the little trails through the petrified wood areas where the logs, the trees have fallen over the and the insides have crystallized, the color on the insides of those trees is amazing. I mean, you'll see yellows and pinks and blues and you know, how often do you look at a tree and see colors like that?
1: <laughs> it is kind of fabulous, like a, a kaleidoscope yeah. of colors. You know, one thing that that takes away from petrified forest is you can't overnight in the park unless you go into the backcountry. I country. know it. And, <laughs> you know, you mentioned the north end with the, the painted desert inn. Let's bring that sucker back. I mean, oh, that's you want to bring that back
2: as an inn, sure, yes.
1: Sure, that's a beautiful <laughs> facility, a lot, of, a lot of history there.
2: Yeah, and it's got some really cool indigenous art programs going on at it, too, that I wouldn't want to see those disappear in favor of having people back at it, you know, overnighting in it. But um, they do a lot of demonstrations of art and so forth there that's really fun to see.
1: You know, one one place that I keep pointing out, and, and people probably get tired of hearing me say this, but, um, you know, Cape, Cape Hatteras last year had record visitation. Mm-hmm. I think three million or three point two million. You go a little bit south to Cape Lookout National Seashore, still on the outer banks of North Carolina, had around five hundred and fifty thousand. No, Talk about solitude. Um, exactly. And and sure, it's it's more rustic. You don't have lodges out there on the beach. You don't have a a town there. Um you have towns on the mainland. But um, you know, you, you get out to the the barrier islands by what they call ferries, and they're really kind of skiffs, 19-foot, 20-foot skiffs that they'll take you out. Or, you know, if you can go, go a little bit north and take one of the car ferries out there, but they only hold two or three or four cars at a time. And talk about solitude, and, you know, I know they've got those, uh, those they call them fishing cabins, and I know they're they're having to um, relocate some of them because of sea level shifts and, and whatnot. But um, I just had one of the best experiences of my life out there. Oh, wow. Um, it's it's just stable. such such a wild, wild seashore that you can imagine what it looked like when it was, you know, whites first reached uh, the continent. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I think um, one thing that people should be aware of is not too many years down the road, I think four, we're going to have the 250th anniversary of the United States in coming in 2026. Mm hmm. And you know that in 2026, places like Valley Forge National Historic Park, Moores Creek National Battlefield, and Saratoga National Historic Site, just to name three, probably are going to be a little bit more crowded than they are today. Yes, I would assume so.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: And I think they'd be, you know, perfect places to visit this year.
2: Yes, you know, definitely.
1: People talk about Mesa Verde, and I know, I know you enjoy Mesa Verde, as do I. It gets crowded. You can um, go over to Flagstaff, have, have your base camp in Flagstaff if you want to stay in a, a lodge there, and you've got, within an hour's drive, Walnut Canyon National Monument, Wapatki National Monument, Montezuma Castle National Monument, Sunset Crater Volcano National Monument, just an incredible collection, and not too much further down the road is Tuzigoot National Monument, and you can see a lot of the same history that you see at Mesa Verde. You don't have as many cliff dwellings as you do in one place as you do at Mesa Verde, but you've got some fantastic cliff dwellings at Montezuma Castle and, um, you know, some ruins of cliff dwellings at, at those other places. Right. And you don't have the crowds. You so. don't have the crowds. Yeah.
2: So your chances of getting in there and to experience it without the panic of <laughs> and anxiety and, and, People, elbow,
1: elbow, it's a lot better. Uh, Another one of my favorites is Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument down deep in Arizona on the Mexico border. Seldom visited. The the numbers are are really um, amazing. Um, Let me see here if I can pull up the the most recent visitation. But, um, you know, obviously if you go to Organ Pipe, you don't want to go in the uh, the summertime because it gets awfully darn hot. It's too hot. (laughs) But But, um, if you go, you know, December, January, February, it is just – marvelous and um you know you've got um, a lot of a lot of wildlife there too between um, a lot of bird life hummingbirds and whatnot so yeah i mean Oregon pipe cactus national monument is just a phenomenal place and it it's hard to believe in 2021 it only saw 190,848 visitors now now certainly certainly some of this was concern over over border crossings which when I was down there and I was I wasn't down there last year I was down there a few years ago it wasn't an issue I didn't experience any any problems with that they've got a marvelous campground it's big it it's um spread out it's got solar heated showers which are nice but you got to watch out that you don't scald yourself
2: oh too hot yeah yeah you know the other park I always I I'm just amazed at um that's down equally as far south, like right on the border, is Big Bend National Park. And to me, that one, for wildlife watching in the spring, the birds are phenomenal. And I remember hiking up through the Chisos Mountains. We actually, we did a backpack trip up through them. And we would, (laughs) we'd hike about a mile and then we'd just stop and listen and listen. And it was just, It was like this incredible symphony of birds that we were listening to up there because there was just it's got so many migratory birds and songbirds and so forth coming through. And then ones that just stay there year round, too. But
1: that's an amazing park. Well, yeah, but you can't get there from here. I mean, (laughs) it's amazing. It's amazing. I was looking at air, at airline uh, travel down to Big Ben the other day and, you know, they wanted to route me through Seattle. They wanted to route me through oh, yeah. Atlanta. Um, <laughs> you can't get there from here. And no, you just fly into West Texas
2: to like El Paso and drive over. And, and
1: yeah, five hour drive, but... <laughs> Big Bend has been discovered Becky. Come on. I mean, well,
2: um, yes, uh, but it's not in the top 25. So that's no. why I'm just <laughs> still putting a little word in for
1: so it. So maybe maybe they should put a cap on visitation there. I mean, they had 581,000 last year, which um looking through the figures, that was the busiest year that Big Bend has ever experienced by a lot. I mean, the the next biggest year was back and it looks like 2019 when they had 463 832 and so you're talking almost one hundred twenty thousand increase um in two years that's 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 a
2: lot, lot of increase yeah. it is
1: it is um but yeah i understand it's a fabulous park i haven't quite made it there yet it's on my to-do list and um hopefully soon we can cross it off you could my- actually
2: do a nice little triangle with big bend guadalupe and carlsbad caverns
1: nice little to find nice little how many miles. Well, was it you know, it's a
2: couple hours, by well, three, four hours between Big Bend and Guadalupe and Carlsbad, of course, are right next to each other. So sure. those, that's like what, I don't know, 10-15 minutes down the road from each other. But um that's that's kind of fun to put those three.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and Guadalupe for sure is uh, an undiscovered jewel out there in the park system, um, popular with backpackers, but it's got some. Amazing cultural history with uh, the Buffalo Soldiers out there and the the Mescalero um, Mm -hmm. Native Native Americans who were unfortunately driven out of the area. It also Um, has some really good hikes that's fun. It does. I I understand that. Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Yeah,
2: there's one. Um, And especially, you know, if you want the solitude, get up to the North Rim because everybody goes to the South Rim. Exactly. And yeah, so there's there's ways to. uh, to even get further away from people on that one.
1: No, again, that's, a, that's also on my to-do list, but um, it sounds like a fabulous place. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law were out there and uh, wrote a nice story for The Traveler a few years ago. And it just, you know, with the solitude you mentioned, and it's got some great overlooks down into that black chasm of a canyon. Um, sounds like a phenomenal, phenomenal park that uh, so far is off most people's radar. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is you know i was a history minor in college and so i, I, I can't i can't overlook the um the parks that preserve and interpret history places like new bedford whaling national historical park or <laughs> salem hey come on i mean we had herman Melview sat in the pew there at the the seamen's bethel in new bedford and that's where he got his idea to write um, moby dick so there's some great literary history there <laughs> uh, along with whaling history um yeah Grant Coors Ranch National Historic Site in Montana. Yep. Fabulous, fabulous park. I really enjoyed it. It's not big. um, It's just a a fraction of what the original Grant Coors Ranch once entailed. I mean, we're talking multiple states and into into Canada, as I recall.
2: Yeah. And, And that's a fabulous place if you really are from anywhere outside of ranching country. It's a fabulous place to get a handle on what that whole life was about, sure. it's still about in many places and what it took to do these, you know, manage these big ranches and keep them functioning and so forth.
1: Yeah. When I was there, um, one of the Rangers actually was um, a, a practicing smithy. And so you oh, could go, fun. you could go and watch her or, or him, depending on who's doing it these days, bang out. Um, you know, they, they, they made me a, a, a boot pick from, you know, iron that they heated in oh. their, their fire there. And they've got um, slices of, uh, I don't know if it was aspen or pine, and then they had the Grant Coors brand that they would brand into it so you could have a, a coaster with the Grant Coors brand on it. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, not too far away, um, somebody else was making some cowboy coffee, and if it was a little brisk that morning, they'd give you a cup of cowboy coffee. You could take a wagon ride around the um, the ranch there, The ranch house inside is just phenomenal with all the artifacts that they have from back in the the 1800s. 1800s. Right. So definitely one of my favorites. Well, Becky, I I wish we had time to to go on, um, but um, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you you say your next edition is coming out this fall? Yes, it is. It should be out in October. So have you told Congress that no more national parks until that book comes out? (laughs)
2: I should, because every time one of my books comes out, the next month, there's a new national parks. So it's yeah. kind of like they wait for my book to come out, then do it.
1: Economic development, Becky. You've got the driver there. <laughs> yeah, something like that. We've been talking today with Becky Lomax, the author of USA National Parks, The Complete Guide to All 63 Parks as of this fall. Becky, thanks so much uh, about talking visitation in the parks. It's always fun and look forward to getting you back here after your next edition comes out. Okay,
2: great. Thanks, Kurt. It was fun to talk with you.
1: That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to be talking about wilderness, wilderness in Big Bend National Park. It's an interesting story. We're also, in the weeks ahead, going to be visiting with the superintendent of Cape Hatteras National Seashore, To discuss his visitation and also talk about rising sea levels and some of the impacts those are bringing to the National Seashore, and we've got some other exciting shows down the road. Thanks again for listening. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
0: The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling national park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com.